Hey, Future Medics. I'm Joshi. And I'm Anne. And today we have a special guest with us. Do you want to introduce yourself? I'm Lynn Yaffe, and I'm the uh, co-founder, chairman, and CEO of EPR Technologies. And obviously, okay. I'll explain more about that in a moment. And before we talk about EPR and its purpose, just some information. Make sure you subscribe to our podcast on all platforms, which are Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Amazon Music. And then follow our Instagram, which is at Medics on the Mic, which is where we post all of our like updates about when we're going to post episodes and stuff like that. But with that out of the way, do you want to talk more about your background, maybe why you wanted to go into research? Yeah, I was raised in Baltimore, even though I was born in England at the end of uh, World War II. My father was stationed over there. My mother was British at the end of the war. My brother uh, and I were brought to the U.S. And so I was raised in Baltimore, is where my father from, uh, is from. And I went to uh, high school at what was then called the Baltimore Polytechnic Institute. And it's still there, Poly. When I went, it was all uh, male. It wasn't uh, co-ed as it is now, but it was a math science high school. And then I went to uh, Johns Hopkins University uh, undergraduate, majored in biophysics. And then I had early admission to University of Maryland Medical School. And so I went there. And, uh, and then I was interested in pathology. And so I did my residency in pathology at Columbia University, Columbia Presbyterian Medical Center, which at that time, and I guess still is controlled by Columbia University. And, you know, I did many autopsies and, you know, surgical biopsies, reading them on slides, you know, pathology, what pathologists do. And it was there that I got involved in research. And I worked in research there at Columbia University. And also in those days, Huffman LaRoche had Institute of Molecular Biology in Nutley, New Jersey. And I would go from Manhattan over to Nutley to do research there. When I was finishing my medical education, I signed up for what's called the, what was called the Berry Plan. And at that time, because the Vietnam War was going on, if you signed up for the Berry Plan, you obligated yourself to four years of military service, but they allowed you to finish your residency training before being drafted. You know, if you didn't sign up, they might call you as soon as you do one year of internship and they wouldn't allow you to do your residency. But if you mm -hmm. obligated yourself to four years, now, they don't do that anymore. So as soon as I signed up and obligated myself to naval <laughs> service, the Vietnam War came to an end. So, <laughs> so I still had my four years of obligated service. So I was doing research at Columbia and the Huffman LaRoche. And the Navy said, oh, you owe us four years. So I said, where can I do research in the Navy? Where can I do medical research? So they told me I could do research in Bethesda at the time at the Naval Medical Research Institute in Bethesda. It still exists, but it's in a new building along with the Army Medical Research Center over at Fort, can't remember, it's in Montgomery County near Silver Spring. It's a new building, a new research facility that was established a number of years ago. And they named it after Senator Inouye, I guess dead now who was a strong proponent of research in the military. So I arranged to uh, do my four years at the Naval Medical Research Institute. And, you know, in those early days, they allowed you to do whatever research you wanted to do. 
uh, and they gave you money to do it. Now it's while I was there, it got stricter over time where they wanted to make sure you focused on uh, military relevant research. So I said it was a good deal. I spent 10 years there. And once you spend 10 years, you say, well, what's the point of getting out of the military? You know, they give you money. It's not so hard to get it. Uh, and I was always interested in uh, in trauma research, blood research. So I ended up staying for 20 years in the Navy, and I was always in research, though I did spend some time at the Pentagon in a medical division overseeing research. And also at some time, I became a program manager, giving out money to Navy labs and to universities. And it was in those later years that I met Dr. Peter Saffer. And the Navy and the Army had interest at the time is how can we save combat casualties who are killed in action? People don't generally know that the vast majority for U.S. and it's probably true for combatants around the world, that most die from rapid bleeding. If you, you know, blown up into pieces or if your head's shot off, obviously you immediately die. But most combat casualties, they have extremity injuries, abdominal injuries, and they die from rapid bleeding. And that represents about 80% of the deaths of combat casualties is due to rapid bleeding. And if you could get a surgical team there instantaneously with blood and everything that's needed, you could conceivably save their lives. So the military said, what can we do to save that 80%? And I was in the Navy at the time, my latter years in the Navy, and I controlled money at the time. And I, at a conference, I met Dr. Peter Saffer. And Peter Saffer, he had an idea of what to do. And he was famous because he started mouth-to-mouth -mouth resuscitation and popularized CPR. In the late 50s, he invented mouth-to-mouth -mouth with his associates, but he was the leader. And he integrated it with poorly done chest compressions. And chest compressions by themselves didn't work if you couldn't actually oxygenate the blood effectively. And they had some crude techniques for oxygenating blood where they'd raise your arms. None of those things worked until he showed that you could do mouth to mouth and oxygenate the blood. And he actually started the first paramedic service in the world before Dr. Saffer there were just ambulance drivers. They didn't do anything for you. They took you to a hospital. This is the late, you know, 1950s. So he took a group. He was at the University of Pittsburgh at the time. He was chief of anesthesiology there. He actually headed up the first department of anesthesiology because prior to Dr. Saffer, anesthesiologists worked in the department of surgery. Now every place has an independent department, but he started that. He started mouth to mouth and really popularized CPR, wrote the first book called The ABCs of Resuscitation, trained the first paramedics and the first paramedics in Pittsburgh in the world. They were African-American people that he took orderlies from the hospital and some unemployed African-Americans. And he is an associate, Nancy Caroline, who was one of his protégés at the time. They trained those men to be paramedics. And if the police were called because someone had an, a medical emergency, that's what you did in the late 50s, early 60s. You called the police and the police would find out what was happening. And then they'd call Dr. Saffer's paramedics. This was before 911 existed for an emergency call. So then in the early 60s, 911 was started. And then 
for medical emergencies, they called 911, the paramedics went out. And his paramedics really went around the U.S. to train other paramedics. And Nancy Caroline, his protege who helped him train paramedics, she went to Israel. She's recognized in Israel. She's dead now, but as the mother of paramedics in Israel. I don't know what the Hebrew words are. So he started that. And he's known today as the father of cardiopulmonary resuscitation. And he started the first paramedic service, designed the first ambulance. He started the subspecialty of critical care medicine. He produced the first CPR simulator, you know, to teach people how to do mouth to mouth. He had a doll company in Norway make that first simulator because they knew how to make dolls. And now that company, Doll, they only make medical equipment from defibrillators <laughs> to full computer controlled simulators. It's amazing. They went from dolls to that. In the mid 1990s, I met Dr. Saffer, as it was famous. And when the military asked him, what could we do to save those 80% of combatants who die from rapid bleeding? You know, you bleed and you go into cardiac arrest. It's called extanguination cardiac arrest. And Dr. Saffer said, let's rapidly cool them down. Let's do rapid, profound hypothermia. If you cool the body down to a low temperature, not freezing, because you can't bring back someone if you freeze them, you know, with water crystals break cells. But if you cool them down to, let's say, seven to 10 degrees centigrade Celsius, which is about 50 degrees Fahrenheit, they don't need any oxygen for a few hours. Their cells are alive, but they're sort of in a suspended animation. You have no brain waves, no breathing is necessary. Your heart's not beating. You're cold. You're very cold. Then when you do surgical repairs, you rewarm them. This was his idea, okay? And he discussed it with the army, a guy by the name of uh, Colonel Bellamy. The military, Navy, and the army, over the years, they put in $17.75 million to do the research, the animal research. And now, most recently, they've paid for the ongoing clinical trials to do this on humans at Maryland Shock Trauma. And hopefully soon, a, a clinical trial will be started at Cook County Hospital in Chicago. The idea is simply that instead of trying to resuscitate someone who's bleeding or they have sudden cardiac arrest for some reason and you can't do mouth to mouth or CPR and defibrillations and you can't get the heart started, you know, you could try that for 30 minutes, but if it's not done well, you risk brain injury or whatnot. If you can't do that properly, if you can't get the heart started, you die right? There's no, nothing else to do. About 2,000 people every day die in the U.S. from trauma, about 500, and about 1,500 from cardiac arrest that can't be reversed with CPR and defibrillation. So Dr. Saffer said, let's do temporary suspended animation, he called it initially. Large animal studies were done, pigs, small animal studies, rats, and under anesthesia, it was possible to bleed those animals to the point where they'd go into cardiac arrest. Wait, sorry, we were cut off, but we're back on. <laughs> that was at the point of saying that if you cool someone down to seven to 10 degrees Celsius, their vital organs and their cells don't die. I mean, they're unconscious, there are no brain waves, there's no heartbeat, there's no need for breathing. And it opens up a three plus hour window where you can transport the person to a hospital and do surgical repairs. 
and then do what's called delayed resuscitation because now you've repaired their problems. Uh, you know, anecdotally, you've probably heard that sometimes there's a healthy skier who gets buried in an avalanche. And then when they're rescued, they're unconscious because they've cooled down to uh, 10 degrees centigrade, luckily. And then they rewarm them. You know, they're able to get all their vital organs started when they're rewarmed. And that's been reported in the medical literature several times. So there is anecdotal evidence. They've had young children fall in the wintertime under a great lake and the divers rescue them. They cool down so quickly that they can then rewarm them and resuscitate them. So we're doing the same thing, but in obviously trauma victims or combat casualties or people with sudden cardiac arrest. So it's immensely more difficult because their organs or their body has had an insult. Now you preventing them from dying immediately, and you get them to the point where you can, let's say, resuscitate them, but then you've got all these other medical problems, perhaps, to deal with, the way you don't have in a, in a healthy skier, perhaps. At Maryland Shock Trauma, I can't talk about the, the data because the FDA doesn't like information being released. Though, when the very first patient was done, and it's a slow process because the strict criteria for the FDA, you got to be in a certain age group. You have to have no evidence of head injury. You have to go into cardiac arrest after you arrive at the trauma center so that the trauma surgeons know exactly when CPR was started and they know the quality of the CPR, not the paramedics. They do quality CPR. But they want to know when time zero is and they want to be able to measure everything that's not done in the field. So because of all of the strict criteria that have to be followed to be enrolled in the study, it's a very slow process. By slow, I mean it can take years. And also the FDA requires a control group. So everybody that you come across in the trauma center and say, well, this could be someone who we could use EPR on because we can't resuscitate them. They say, well, wait, we need a control group. So you let that person die. It's just the way medical research is done. I mean, maybe miraculously that person's going to wake up. You know, you always hear those rare cases where someone is sent down to the morgue and they're ready to put them in the refrigerator until the funeral home arrives and the person says, what's going on? <laughs> Very rare occurrence, but it does happen. But control has to be done. The very first patient done, it was reported in the news that for the first time ever, someone had been put in suspended animation. And so now we don't release any information because we don't want to get people thinking about it before all the data is analyzed and looked at by the FDA. Mm -hmm. But obviously it's very promising because it's been done in large animals. What happens at the trauma center, if someone is brought in who's a gunshot victim or uh, automobile accident, and they go into cardiac arrest at the trauma center, and keep in mind that you know what the biggest cause of death among U.S. people under the age of 18? I've heard it's either opioids or it's suicide. Gunshot, Victor. Oh. Now that includes suicide by gunshot. Mm. I think number two is drug overdoses. Mm -hmm. And conceivably, if Narcan doesn't reverse a fentanyl overdose, and if you do CPR and you can't get them resuscitated or you can't get their breathing reversed with Narcan because it's gone on too far, 
you conceivably try EPR, but mostly EPR is for trauma and sudden cardiac arrest. But when a patient gets to the trauma center at Maryland Shock Trauma, you know, they're starting blood or giving them fluid. And then in front of them, they go into cardiac arrest. They're a possible candidate for EPR. At that point, when the patient goes into cardiac arrest, they do standard chest compressions, mouth to mouth, or they'll intubate the patient and breathe, you know, with a bag, put them on a respirator. So the lungs are being uh, inflated. They're doing chest compressions and they'll do that for 30, 40 minutes. They do defibrillation as well, trying to get the heart started. After 30 minutes, they even will do a left thoracotomy where they cut into the chest between the ribs on the left side and the glove surgical hand will manually massage the heart, squeeze that heart, trying to get blood out to the brain and whatnot. Sometimes they'll put a clamp on the descending aorta. So any blood coming out of the heart is shunted to the brain because the brain is obviously the most important thing. The other organs can do without oxygen a bit longer. If that doesn't work, if they still can't get the heart started by defibrillation directly on the heart, they can't go forever manually massaging, they will then say if that person is lucky enough for EPR, they'll then put a catheter, a big tube into the descending aorta and start pumping in ice cold saline that's like one, two degrees Celsius. And so now they've lost so much blood that now they replace the remaining blood with ice cold saline. The FDA doesn't want additives other chemicals put in the saline. That's for a future clinical trial. So then you're pumping in saline and saline is coming out of open wounds. And of course, that's being drained on a table or in a Jupiter collection bottle. You know, the techniques for all of that. And the patient is cooled down within seven to 10 minutes, cooled down to 10 degrees Celsius. And during that cool down phase, the patient can go for like five to seven minutes without oxygen, but they've given good oxygen delivery up to that time. And so they get them cooled down very quickly. Now the patient has no brain waves, no breathing. They don't have to worry about cardiac massage. The patient appears dead, but there's cellular life. No brain waves, but your cells are still alive. Then the surgeons do you know, whatever surgery has to be done. If they've been bleeding from the abdomen, they fix all of that. If they've been bleeding from extremities, they fix all that. Mostly abdominal bleeding, whatever injuries they've had. Maybe they have a lung injury from a gunshot wound or automobile act. They fix all those injuries and then they close the patient. And if during these procedures, if they've had to, you know, put in a little more cold saline to keep the body as cool as it needs to be, then after everything is sewn up and closed, they hook up the patient to cardiopulmonary bypass. They'll do that artery in the arm or the groin, and then they'll start to give them blood back. And then they let the saline out, which they drain through a vein. So now you're taking out the ice cold saline and you're putting back cold blood, okay? Because you know the patient's blood type or they just use universal uh, uh, donor blood. And then once they give them back the blood, they start to rewarm that blood. And so the patient's getting warmer and warmer. And once the patient gets up to 34 degrees centigrade, the heart may spontaneously start. If it doesn't spontaneously start, they may defibrillate. 
then the heart starts. That's the goal. They've got blood. They've got the heart started. They're still on a respirator. But if the patient starts to breathe, they'll take them off the respirator, just put on an assistant device for it. But, you know, and the patient's obviously under anesthesia. So, you know, they're still comatose, so to speak. They're rewarmed to the point of what's called mild hypothermia, just maybe two, three degrees below 37. And they'll usually keep the patient in the ICU two to three degrees below normal because that takes the edge off of recovery. It's, it's very protective of the brain while the patient is recovering. And then maybe after two days, they'll bring them up to 37 degrees, see if they can breathe on their own. Now, depending on the injuries that brought them to the point of a trauma patient, you may have some medical problems. You know, sometimes they can get into organ system failure. You know, you know you're not out of the woods just because they resuscitated you. And so then you hope for the best. It's like if you just do standard CPR, you spend 30 minutes doing it and you defibrillate and you get the heart started. The paramedics get the heart started and they take you to the hospital. You may still be in a coma, you know. And if you are in a coma, they do mild hypothermia. They don't stop your heart from beating, which they've just reached, but they keep you mildly cool, just two or three degrees below normal. And hopefully you'll recover. Not all patients recover 100%. You know, people get resuscitated and they may have some disabilities following that. They may not have 100% of their prior mental uh, faculties that they had before. So it's a risk, you know, you take those risks to save a life, but you're not guaranteed that they're going to be 100% afterwards. It's like any medical condition, a chronic condition may follow. The same will be true for EPR. We'll take one more chance to save a life and we'll do the best we can. Now, ultimately, it may be discovered that instead of doing CPR for 30 minutes, and possibly compromising the brain or other vital organs because you're not getting enough oxygen in the field. Maybe you want to start EPR earlier. You know, if you can't get the heart started with the first defibrillation after a few minutes, maybe do EPR. I mean, that's a clinical trial for the future because the most important thing is to protect the brain, right? And they're Research is being done even during standard CPR. Should there be neuroprotectants that are given to help protect your brain and, and neurons from dying if there's a momentary decrease in oxygen levels? You know, a lot of research is done to help protect the brain with neuroprotectants in stroke patients. So a lot of different areas come together, but the goal of EPR is to prevent trauma victims and sudden cardiac arrest victims from dying when standard CPR, chest compressions, mouth to mouth, resuscitation and, and defibrillation fails. And, uh, you know, everyone, you know, if you're in otherwise good condition, particularly if you're a automobile accident or an, uh, another uh, a trauma victim or a young person, who might go into cardiac arrest. I can't remember the names of the athletes. You know, there was a, a football player that had cardiac arrest on the field. And then there was a basketball player. Sometimes they have an underlying condition or 
you know, some sort of a uh, arrhythmia, but sometimes they just don't know why. I mean, maybe an arrhythmia occurred because they were, you know, were um, had impacted on the chest. And fortunately, those two cases that I know of, uh, I mean, they were brought back immediately by CPR. But if they weren't, they'd be wonderful candidates for EPR. Um, so th there's a lot of applications and the whole thing is designed to give people one more chance at survival when standard CPR fails. And uh, the products that we're developing that require obviously FDA approval after the clinical trials procedures are approved, we're you know in the final prototyping stages and we wanna manufacture soon uh, uh, prototypes that will be FDA uh, approved for the procedure uh, and also utilize artificial intelligence in the steps that have to be done. Artificial intelligence is very good, let's say, at helping a, a paramedic insert the catheter, you know, into a large artery or even into your aorta, uh, you know, via ultrasound. You know, artificial intelligence can look at an ultrasound image and say whether your the catheter is being guided properly and help with decision support. When you're looking at the patient's parameters during CPR, during cooling, artificial intelligence is very effective in doing that. I mean, all fields in medicine now are uh, exploring um, the utilization of artificial intelligence and decision support. I don't know if you're aware of that, but um, like um, in uh, when women go in for mammographies to look for uh, breast cancer, they now have artificial intelligence look at those x-rays and they, the, the studies that I've looked at, the artificial intelligence is 25% more effective at locating very, very tiny lesions that the radiologist might overlook. So at many universities now, they're doing a lot of research in having AI look at images. It's excellent for looking at images and comparing to the library of images and making uh, 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 diagnoses. Um, it's, uh, I went for a routine eye exam uh, a month ago and I said to the ophthalmologist, you know, all of the imaging that's done, they look at your retina and they do all of the, the measurements. You know, the technicians do all of these things on machines. AI should be able to do all of that. He said, yes, at universities, they're incorporating AI into all of the eye exams that are being done. And eventually there'll be a software company. He says, it'll be one more piece of equipment that he has to buy. <laughs> and have AI, AI do it all. But it's uh, every field in medicine is incorporating AI and it'll be incorporated down to the level of, of paramedics for decision support. Um, and uh, so it's very interesting, you know, obviously AI, like every other technology can be misused and abused, but in medicine, it's going to have a, a, a um, life-saving impact across the board. Mm -hmm. So that's the story about EPR to save one more life when uh, CPR fails. I give all the credit to uh, Dr. Saffer, uh, the father of CPR. He was at Pittsburgh, and when he became Professor Emeritus, they named the center the Saffer Center for Resuscitation Research, and he died in 2003, and I worked with him from the mid-1990s until his death. He worked 
uh, you know, uh, almost to the last two weeks uh, before he died. Uh, before he died, he wrote uh, the Woods Library Museum of Anesthesiology, uh, which is, you know, a group uh, fostering anesthesiology and whatnot. They would ask the most prominent anesthesiologists in the world to write autobiographies. So Dr. Saffer, in this series called Career and Careers in Anesthesiology, he wrote his autobiography. Dr. Saffer wrote his autobiography. And uh, there's a picture of Dr. Saffer. And he inscribed it when he gave me a copy of his book. <laughs> Very sweet guy. And I'm mentioned in here, I think on page 250. It's, it's a meticulous book about his career. And so, yeah, I mean, the guy had a phenomenal memory and he kept everything. So he wrote about all the people that he interacted with. And because I interacted with him and supported the initial uh, research in EPR, uh, worked with him that he uh, included me, write, writing about me in his book. This this book now is is available for free online. It's a, an online book. If you go to the Wood, W-O-O-D, Library Museum of Anesthesiology, you go to their website, whatever it is, but if you just type in Google, Wood Library Museum of Anesthesiology, and you go to there, uh, and you can search for uh, Peter Saffer's book, S-A-F-A-R, and you, you I guess, read it online, or you can uh, look through it. He's got many... Uh, He's got many photos in it, uh, of people he interacted with and whatnot. His wife is still alive. She moved from oh. Pittsburgh to the uh, Northwest US where her, her children and grandchildren live. But he was a very great individual. He was nominated for the Nobel Prize three times and was never received it, but he was nominated for it three times uh, because of his impact on um, on life say on saving lives because of CPR. Yeah. And that yeah. first mannequin is called Rasasa Annie. You ever heard of Rasasa Annie? No, I've never heard of it. Was what he named the first mannequin for practicing CPR. Rasasa dash Annie. Um, is there Rasasa like a reason for for the Annie part? Well, I think they just chose that name Rasasa Annie, but the face of the doll that you do mouth to mouth on. For in a in a Rasasa Annie doll, though it's changed, uh, is was the death mask of a woman who committed suicide in Paris. She jumped into the Seine River and died, and they pulled her body out and they made a death mask of her oh, face. I've heard of this. A beautiful young lady. If you look up Rasasa Annie on YouTube, there's a um, uh, a YouTube where some guy is describing the history of Rasasa Annie. I think I've watched that. Yeah, I, I mean, and you can if you type the the if you type in Freedom House, you can also read about the first paramedic services. Doctor Schaffer called the first paramedics freedom the service called the Freedom House. So if you type into um, uh, YouTube, uh, Freedom House, Rasasa Annie, Peter Saffer. You type in my name, even you can find a lot. Or if you go to the EPR website, which is uh, www. 
dot epr hyphen technologies.com or even epr hyphen technology plural or single.com and we've got a lot of these videos um you know at our website and we're in the process of raising money now we were on start engine that crowdfunding site and we had about 180 people made small investments you know, $200, $400. So there was a general interest. And so now we're going after, you know, two to $5 million. And we've got some uh, very significant interest. So I hope in the next, uh, I hope by the first of the year, we'll have at least two to $3 million investment. And then we're really off and running. You know, mm -hmm. the investors are very much concerned about, well, how soon will they make money? How soon is this commercialized? You know, <laughs> they're interested in uh, saving lives as well, but uh, but they have to make money. They have to get their investment back. They're a very uh, excellent group of investors we've talked to. They're always very knowledgeable. They always want to know all the details. You know, sometimes they have as many as 50 or 60 separate questions that have to be answered to satisfy their due diligence. You know, and they say, oh, this is this is great stuff, great stuff. Um, and they wish us uh, the very best. But it takes a while. But now we've got some definite uh, interest. And so everything's going to uh, work out eventually. Um, and I'm interested in making money, too, just like the investors. You know, in my old age, I, I'd like to uh, be able to afford 24-7 health care, right? <laughs> a health aid. Yeah. As my mother had before she died. <laughs> well, people are living longer all the time now. Yeah. I, I know someone who's like, 105. Yeah. I heard it's like, it's not really because we're like healthier. I think it's because like, like, I think I was reading somewhere that it was because of like all the, like the technology and like yes. the, the right. Um, like the surgeries that, that we have Absolutely, now. because of all the life-saving medical surgical interventions. Yeah. Antibiotics around the world are the big thing. Um, but, you know, the, the next big uh, frontier is anti-aging, or some people call it de-aging. In other words, it's both slowing the aging process, that there might one day be a drug sooner than you think, that that you start taking maybe when you reach maturity, let's say 25 mm -hmm. and, um, and you take that, whatever, you know, uh, the frequency of it is, and it slows the aging process down um, so that you'll live to be 200 or maybe even longer. And wow. to take old people and make them younger, that's probably more difficult to do, but to slow the aging process, I think that's in the next 50 years, that's going to be the thing, you know, assuming we can afford to pay for it uh, <laughs> because insurance companies may, may, may not want you to yeah. live that long, but that's going to happen. I mean, they're understanding more and more about that. You know, they're, they're in primitive life forms, like in vertebrates, in, uh, in some worms by genetic manipulations, they can uh, lengthen, the life of those uh, worms 10 times. And so, uh, you know, some of the genes that they change are, we have those genes as well, mm -hmm. you know, and it's just a matter of uh, getting rid of uh, 
cells that no longer effectively rejuvenated, you know, because of genetic problems. You know, there's the famous uh, called naked vole or naked rat in Africa. It's called naked because it's hairless. It lives underground, but it lives like 10 times to 15 times longer than a, a normal lab rat. Oh. And it's because they have an excess of DNA repair enzymes. So when something goes wrong for a gene that'll affect aging and the reason you get older, they have repair enzymes. So, you know, eventually they do die for various uh, reasons, but to live 10 or 15 times longer. And so they've, they've been able to uh, genetically manipulate like fruit flies and other, uh, I think they've now, they're doing it in mice now too, or the initial studies in mice to give them an uh, uh, extra DNA repair enzymes and then to see how much longer they'll live beyond, you know, uh, litter mates that uh, have been treated. So you wow. guys are at the right age. <laughs> we were you, actually... want to, you want to take that, uh, that pill that slows your aging once it's developed and also Botox. So you remain uh, gorgeous. <laughs> We were actually studying like aging in um our school. I think we were talking about like telomeres. Yes. Yeah. We Supposedly those shorten as time goes on. Yeah. But they've also found some people who age where the telomeres don't get that short. So oh. it's interesting, but the, there's some um complexity around it. You know, it's not fully understood. Mm -hmm. I mean, maybe some people get old and their telomeres don't shorten. Maybe they've got other genetic problems. Mm -hmm. uh, but I think classically, your telomere gets shorter as you age. But maybe with DNA repair enzymes, that wouldn't happen. I don't know. But that's a very interesting concept, mm -hmm. one of the early ones. And, and I think some of the billionaires, you know, like uh, the Apple billionaires, the Google billionaires, the Facebook billionaires, I think they've all are supporting institutes uh, for anti-aging now. And a number of the big universities, they have centers for anti-aging. And um, NIH has had a, a, an institute of gerontology for a long time. So, uh, God, I wish I were being born just this year <laughs> instead of so long ago. <laughs> It would, some people don't want to live forever, but I do. Really? Wow. Well, if I could be healthy, I don't want to be uh, in, you know, in a hospital bed. You know, I want to be fully functional mentally and physically. And then I'd like to live forever. I mean, there are, um, I think there, there's some uh, starfish or jellyfish. I can't remember that live forever, but they're oh. immortal. Primitive oh. life form that is immortal because they can regrow themselves. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not true immortality in a sense, but they can rejuvenate themselves <laughs> from a portion of their body or, or a complete rejuvenation. I have to look it up again, but uh, that sort of thing is not unknown in the. Uh, and there aren't there some there's some species of trees that live uh, uh, two to 3,000 years. Aside from the, uh, um, what is it? The redwood trees can live a, 
1500 years, but there are another variety of ancient tree um, that can live 3000 years. And I think there's still some around. Uh, people haven't cut them down. So it's possible. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much, Dr. Yaffe, for talking about EPR technologies. It sounds like a really like amazing, like life-saving technology that we can use in the future. My pleasure, ladies. Thank you so much. Um, and then for all the listeners, I'll link everything that Dr. Yaffe was talking about in the description. Um, but yeah, with that out of the way, medics off, off the, the mic. mic. <laughs>